Welcome to another episode. And today we are going to discuss something that is really important. And now in the public debate of these days, we will discuss of the intersection of conservation, the B Corp movement and carbon market. And we do this with an expert, a sustainability expert, a doctor, Dr. Hassan Sacedina, who is the CEO and founder of Sayari Earth and is also the founder and former CEO of BCP. Bio Carbon Partner, a certified B Corp. Thank you so much, Hassan, for being here with us today. Thank you, Samuele, so much for having me on the program. And Hassan, I know you are an expert. You have been at the forefront of the B Corp movement and the carbon movement in the continent for many years. But as usual, the first question for our guest, who is Dr. Hassan? How have you become a sustainability expert? Thank you, Samuele. I'm originally from Kenya. And as a child, my mother would take me on trips to Kenyan national parks that in those days were really quite remote. And so as a child, I remember just becoming passionate, really deciding that this is what I wanted to do. So began volunteering on Kenyan rhino sanctuaries when I was a teenager. Uh, this was during the whole sort of emergency operation to move rhinos into more protected sanctuaries. Uh, then studied environmental science at university and grad school, and initially started off my uh, career in rhino conservation in Tanzania. Then ended up working for uh, conservation NGOs, including one in Tanzania, where I did my PhD. And it was during that time that I became uh, quite frustrated with the approach. We were spending a lot of money, and at the same time, there were massive wildlife declines. Community rights were not being upheld, and we were losing wildlife habitat at an unprecedented, extraordinary rate. So I was really became interested at that point in different approaches, which were primarily market-based. And that's how I ended up in the forest carbon space then and the carbon sector more generally now. And thank you so much, Hassan. I can see already you, you have panel and channel your passion really in the conservation. And I really want to pick up something from your discussion and something that now we have read article and discussion and report. The carbon forestry and the work on conservation. Uh, and your work as pioneer in that field would be your carbon partner. Can you tell us how you have been involved in this and which are the milestones and the work and what biocarbon partner does? Someone around 13 years ago, I saw online that the first red project in the world had passed a CCB validation. So it hadn't issued a credit but it had passed a form of certification. And I'd become aware in grad school, 1997, 1998, about these emerging carbon markets and really was quite interested in how they were going to evolve as a form of conservation finance. So when I saw this announcement in 2009, you know, a decade later, I was immediately interested, contacted the company and became their third employee. And this was for a, a project in Kenya. So I joined and the company issued the first verified carbon standard red methodology, got the world's first VCS red project certified and sold the world's first VCS uh, red credits. That company has gone on to become the largest issuer of carbon credits in the market by volume. The company, which was Wildlife Works, decided to go global, uh, focus on rainforests, and I saw an opportunity to stay local and focus on African dryland forests. So I founded BCP in towards the end of 2011. It was actually registered in early 2012. And it was a very difficult time to try and raise funding for this kind of company because the markets then were an utter frontier. It was really a wilderness. And 
carbon markets were seen by buyers as either a tax or something that uh, had no credibility. So managed to find some initial investors. And the company, because we raised limited funding, we were under a lot of pressure initially to move quickly. So our approach was secure a pilot project. And we did that. And one of the milestones was it was the Lower Zambezi Red Plus project became Africa's first to achieve CCB triple gold for exceptional social impact amongst other impacts. And then following on that, the Lower Zambezi National Park became the first national park in the world to be carbon neutral from operations. We then launched uh, what became the largest red project in Africa, the Luangwa Community Forest Project. And it was around that time, 2015, I think, when we decided to embark upon B Corp certification. And initially, it wasn't really about the scoring, but the company ended up scoring in the top 0.5% of companies for its social impact, environmental impacts, and how we looked after our staff. So the milestones that are also really important is the livelihoods improvement. Um, over $10 million has been invested into communities by BCP. And these are the largest payments into community bank accounts in the history of these communities. And it's really demonstrated a model where in an area which previously had ecologically was facing challenges, economically, socially, very high levels of poverty, very low levels of other kind of land uses, had demonstrated that um, a conservation land use could be transformational for communities. Wildlife has increased in some areas and it's been this project, uh, both projects have helped to revive one of the largest and most important wildlife corridors in Africa, the Luangwa to Lower Zambezi corridor. And all of this culminated in 2021 through the international um, carbon, voluntary carbon market rankings under environmental finance. The Luangwa was awarded the best carbon offsetting project of any sector in the world. That's out of roughly, I think, 7,000 projects, including solar, wind. Um, and BCP was runner-up as the world's best developer in any category, as well as forest carbon. You know, it was really good to, to see. The other things that were really milestones were we were an African uh, firm. And a lot of the competition at the beginning was European or American. I had uncomfortable conversations where people would say that, that, look, you have to do this with consultants from the US or Europe. And we said, no, you don't. And 99% of BCP staff, when I um, took a step back after 10 years running the company in 2021, were um, African born. And so a couple of final points in terms of milestones. By 2030, BCP's goal is, it's a strategy that is called 30 cubed. And really what this is, is enter into co-management agreements across 30 million acres, reducing 30 million tons in emissions per annum and benefiting 3 million people. Huge metrics by any standards for any company or any organization. And linked to that is really just to focus on three large projects in addition to the two which are already set up. You know, one more in Zambia uh, and then focusing on one project in Mozambique and one in Angola. And to tie this to a market-based approach one of the other milestones is that, to the best of our knowledge, BCP has been able to sign a couple of the largest conservation finance deals, to the best of our knowledge, in, in history. And these projects are projected to generate for conservation over the next 15 years, hundreds of millions for conservation, community development, you know, support to government. 
So it really has shown a model that can be extremely transformational. In fact, in my opinion, I think these types of models are the most powerful tools we have of our generation to address the planetary crisis, you know, the intertwined crisis of climate and biodiversity. And thank you so much, Asan, for this work. So you are really shown as how the model works and how this model can be a transformation for this next critical 10 years for African biodiversity and African wildlife. We know that with the rising of population and of course the, the, the enhanced pressure, these 10, 20 years are, are critical. And the way also of the financing of the carbon can be an important player on that. I want to ask two questions for our audience. The first one is, I know you are an expert and but I want to ask if you can give us an explanation. What is Red Plus? If you can define that for our audience. And the second one is really about what you just said, you know, how the model works. If you can go a bit more uh, deeper in that to see how can, can you put together conservation, biodiversity and carbon. Because one of the things that we usually say is, we are a bit carbon obsessed, but the projects like yours are more holistic. I can see a dimension where carbon is a, an enabler rather than a, an end by itself to really transform, as you said, important corridors and restoration of critical ecosystems that have been depleted or almost destroyed. 100%, Samuel. Carbon, you said it really correctly. It's an enabler. What we're looking at here is trying to look for new sources of sustainable conservation finance that values African ecosystem services, creates incentives for people to want to conserve them. Carbon finance is really just the tool. So RED is reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. It's an avoided deforestation mechanism under the UNFCCC. It's designed to protect forests which are natural and standing and create more value for them alive than dead through the creation of um, a carbon credit, you know, a certificate which demonstrates that an activity was carried out and there was an atmospheric benefit with co-benefits. These projects are more than just about ensuring carbon does not enter the atmosphere. These projects are really about how do you transform community livelihoods, empower their rights, support governance and policy, and support biodiversity restoration, and other ecosystem services like uh, water, for example. Another really important issue, as we saw from this week's international, the UN conference. How the model works is no land needs to be owned. This is one of the beauties of these kinds of things, is that it's an empowerment model. It's not an extractive model. So if there's a forest at risk, a community or a private landowner, even the state for that matter, can be approached to see if there are ways of protecting that forest in partnership with communities around that forest. And so what happens is you have a number of activities like protection, community livelihood improvement, working on rights, policy, governance. All of these have to happen at the same time. And forest carbon science. The project then has to pass an independent audit against an international standard in order to be able to issue a credit. Those credits are then sold on the international market to corporates. And that money then circulates back through the system to keep the activities going and to deepen them. And thank you so much for this explanation. I, I know you have been also wonderfully well. I know you are a very excellent communicator because you have 
trickle down very complex work and really a clear explanation on how it works. I want to follow up now on a discussion and on, on something you have mentioned before. B Corp certification for this type of project. BCP has been one of the past certified B Corp in our continent, in Africa. Why you went for something that is American certification, especially in those days, and how this had helped BCP? And well, that's a great question. Initially, it was really just a marketing tool to try and access the American market. I'm American by nationality. My mother's from Kansas. My father's a Kenyan. And I was frustrated by the slow pace. We were able to communicate with European corporates, but the American market was a difficult one. So at that time, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company had become B Corps. I think Etsy as well. So big names. And we applied. And then really, it was to try to enhance marketing. But then there was an evolution in this journey because the audit was really quite difficult. It took months. And when we asked, what is there an issue? They said, no, it's just that we haven't come across many companies that score so highly on these criteria. So we're having to give it extra scrutiny. Then it became quite useful from a branding perspective because BCP was set up as a mission-driven social enterprise. And despite the fact that half of my career before that had been in the nonprofit the conservation NGO sector, this was deliberately designed to be an environmental markets vehicle. The goal being that we've got to have a sustainable business model that creates incentives and is able to scale. And we couldn't see that through a charitable model. So really, when trying to communicate what is a social enterprise, it became quite useful to say, we're also a B Corp. And if you look at this movement, it's really about sustainable business with purpose. It's more than just about trying to make money. This is not the goal. And that is enshrined in BCP's constitutional documents. I made sure of that, that community livelihoods and the conservation impacts of this company will never be over, you know, superseded by any kind of financial pressure from, from an investor, for example. So then that was roughly, I think at that time, there were maybe 1,600 B Corps globally. It was a very small movement. Today, there's just under six and a half thousand. And it's becoming more of a mark that if you are a company which is engaging upon the transformation, the deep systems-wide transformation that society needs, B Corp is one of the most powerful movements that you have to commit to. And so we've, and I have become, you know, very much a huge promoter of this. I think every company in the carbon market should be a B Corp, should undergo that effort. I think every company that is a blue chip, Fortune 5,000, 50,000, the top companies in the world, it has to be something that companies try to aspire to and make efforts to comply with because it is difficult. But what it definitely demonstrates is that companies are making the commitment that are we are not a shareholder-driven uh, model. We are a stakeholder-driven model. And stakeholders include the planet. It includes communities uh, and things like that. So, and this is what, if we look at the IPCC AR6 report that was released this week, again, it reaffirms what we already know and what we've been told for decades. We need a deep systems-wide transformation of society and business if we have any chance of staying below the two degree threshold mark. And they're already saying we're going to blow past 1.5 degrees Celsius. And B Corp is one of those models that demonstrates companies are committed to the transformation that's required over time. Thank you so much, Asan, for this passionate and well-articulated discussion and presentation of the B Corp movement. It's really something that confirms also the research. Sometimes uh, I usually quote one of the B Corp I interviewed. A short story 
a way to, to make a very long story about uh, sustainability and planet and profit short with that brand that resonate with people. And I, I totally agree with you. It is the best way for a company really to demonstrate and something that every company should go. But you have not stopped there. As usual, Asan, you are a change maker and change makers, they never stop. And now you have embarked since you stepped down as a CEO from uh, BCP. Now you have embarked on a new adventure and you have embarked in Sayariard. And I was really interested when reading about it. So a 2.0 approach on nature-based solution. What does it mean? And how are you taking the, the work that you are doing to the next level? Even looking at what you have just said, the report that says we need to act now. Samuele, thank you. I've been so fortunate to work with two great companies and um, to work with a whole host of incredible government and community partners. And I'm so proud of what we've been able to achieve in terms of protecting forests and channeling large amounts of capital that didn't exist before into communities and into conservation. I think the red model has shown it has done what has not been done before in terms of channeling the funding required to help slow deforestation, stop it in some places. But the scientists, as they say, and they are right, just protecting forests as important as it is and avoiding emissions is not enough. So while I'm really proud of BCP and uh, the team, and I'm so grateful to all our partners and everything, became apparent that it was time for me to do something which was of a different scale. So BCP is very much avoidance-based. Its model is purely red. It's focusing on three countries, Sub-Saharan Africa. The model of Sayari Earth, and Sayari is a Swahili name, planet, is it's an international nature-based carbon removals platform. The goal here really is focusing on jurisdictional, large-scale, agricultural, aquatic carbon dioxide removal, and where you have conservation carbon removal as well, combined with biodiversity credits. So it's really looking at trying to expand and pioneer new environmental markets and models and layer different revenue streams of the same hectare by combining, for example, the biodiversity credit market with the nascent and emerging nature-based carbon removal market. Similar to BCP, it's, you know, sort of in my DNA, we're a mission-driven social enterprise with the mission to accelerate incentives to, for people to restore the planet. And what we're really looking at here in terms of what's slightly different is platforms at scale that integrate land and sea carbon dioxide removal. And our vision really is for the planet to become a sponge for CO2. What we need to do is to industrialize nature restoration. And normally those three words are not used in the same sentence, but what we really need to do as society is for nature restoration to effectively become industrialized. So we're working on innovating. Uh, we've commissioned two new methods around aquatic carbon dioxide removal through a team of partners. It's really exciting. And really, if we look at where some of the challenges in the voluntary carbon markets have emerged is really around scale and integrity. So what we're trying to do is to build these jurisdictional platforms that integrate these different pools in a way that ties the accounting and the scalability into ways which addresses those issues of, of integrity and scale while making sure that we are prioritizing community-led approaches. It's really 
scaling up and going the next step in the work and really being a transformational leader. And you really say two words. I really like the industrialized nature restoration. It is something also shows the urgency and how we need to scale it. So from the small and nice, maybe small projects, now we need to be on a planetary scale. And the second point you have discussed is scale and integrity. And the second part, integrity, has been now outside all uh, newspapers, especially we have the recent Guardian uh, articles, discussing and raising concern about the carbon market, especially the voluntary carbon market. So how you have been in the space for many years, how you can respond to these critics that have touched many projects and many countries, and how do you see the voluntary carbon market fitting in the strategy to address the, the planetary emergencies that we have? Someone I've been involved in the red markets since the beginning of the VCS red uh, sector. This isn't the first time I've seen some of these changes and concerns, and I, I doubt it will be the last. These concerns which have been raised, for example, like in the Guardian articles, they're very valid and they're, they're really important. Enough rebuttals have been written about the science. What is indisputable is that protecting forests, standing natural forests, has a positive atmospheric benefit. What is also indisputable is that protecting forests is critical to the mitigation efforts required under the Paris Climate Agreement. What's at debate right now is really amongst the scientists in terms of what is the, what is the certainty criteria in terms of how many credits get reduced under this, you know, this model. And even if you look at, for example, the different rebuttals, even the different rating agencies, there's a very wide spread between what is being argued is real or not. And what I think is really the, the challenge and the opportunity now for the sector, which Vera is undertaking anyway, Vera have announced that a new method, universal one for RED is coming out in Q3 of 2023, is going to address uh, some of the accounting issues. It doesn't surprise me that there are some uncertainty issues. You know, I've said this before, but we're dealing with, you're trying to calculate an intangible of an invisible gas against a counterfactual future scenario. It's bound to have some kind of uncertainty issues. There are conservative mechanisms built in, and it is actually um, a sad state of affairs that there, that rating agencies uh, even have to exist and that there is a market for that. Because effectively, what that's saying is that there is a lack of trust in the audit firms the standards like VERA, even the American National Standards Institute, which audits the auditors and accredits them, and the project developers and their government regulators in where they work. So for all of those different chains to be viewed as, uh, as having integrity not uh, there is something that needs to be addressed. My hope is that these issues get resolved uh, relatively quickly. Rating agencies, their business model may be time limited. They may go extinct when these uh, integrity issues are resolved. And it's not the first time. I mean, someone, I think, you know, there's been quite a bit of sort of exaggerating uh, some of these issues in some of these media articles. Uh, this isn't the first time. I remember in 2013, one of the methods was revised. And uh, BCP almost, we went through a phase where we almost went out of business because we were using one version of a method. And this wasn't to do with any article or newspaper. 
this was Vera undergoing its own internal process of improvement. We're looking at a young sector and it's improving as things go along. It's to be expected. Perfection is in some ways the enemy of good. And many sectors around the world, you keep evolving. When the Wright brothers took off at Kitty Hawk in whenever it was, early 1900s, that was a start of 30, 40 years ago. 30, 40 years later, you know, we were flying around at supersonic speeds. It takes you know, evolution. So I think this is, you know, important that this process undergoes this process of evolution. And it's not the first time. But what I think is really important is that this debate here, what we're talking about, the Guardian articles is a symptom. The underlying condition is this binary view, which I find really quite worrying about whether it's okay to offset or not. And it's kind of linked to concerns around greenwashing, that offsetting is bad because it allows companies to pollute the atmosphere. The AR6 report, again, this week confirmed that carbon removals are going to have to play a really important part of the mix for the next few centuries, well, few decades and next century, because we are, the science is showing that we're going to blow past one and a half degrees Celsius, and we're going to have to claw back somehow through technological and nature-based carbon removals. So offsetting, crediting, these are I hope we can move beyond the debate about whether they're allowed to exist or whether they have the right to exist, because the right to exist is one of the best ways of ensuring that forests are protected. The amount of forests with improved protection increases, and that this planetary vision that we talked about, where forests and ecosystems around the world terrestrially have incentives to look after them, if it's not through the environmental markets, what do we expect is going to pay for this aid? Charity, these areas have to be valued properly for the natural capital that they provide and the services they provide. And those have to be paid for according to the value that they provide to humanity. And so if we somehow try to um, get rid of these types of mechanism tools, in my opinion, humanity is losing out on one of the most important and fundamental tools that we have of our generation to try to address this planetary crisis that we have. And it's really, thank you, Asan, for that. It's really something that it is in the debate. Uh, it's something maybe philosophical about commoditization and war, but I really agree with you because tourism and aid and charity cannot alone sustain the scale and the need for biodiversity. And again, I think sometimes we think of carbon narrowly and then as an end rather than a mean. It's biodiversity and protection that should be at stake. And the problem to be solved, it should be the base of discussion. And then from there, you can see which are the means then where we can work and achieve the solution for that. So I really think that the work if done properly and the work that you have done, it's really important as an enabler for preserve forests as the work you have done uh, in Zambia, for example. And looking ahead, you see, especially taking in consideration the evolving of the standard and the work that you are doing and the debate, which are the goals and the priority for Sayari Earth and BCP in the future? How do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Samuela, so BCP is doing an amazing job in three countries in sub-Saharan Africa and is getting big. So really the goal for BCP, of which I'm a director of the different group entities, is to be one of the highest impact Red Plus developers in the world by hectares under co-management and number of people impacted by 2030. Under the 30 cubed that I, I mentioned, Sayari Earth is global and is really focusing on trying to innovate and drive forward this nature-based carbon removal sector, which 
to us seems a little bit like how the red space looked like maybe 12 years ago. And really what we're looking at is the development of new methodologies, which allow jurisdictions to develop integrated land and sea carbon dioxide removal platforms at scale. The goal here, Sayari really is existing to support governments and communities to help move um, and create the incentives to develop a regenerative economy, but at a jurisdictional and even beyond levels. So what we're really looking at here is, yes, the terrestrial side is important, but oceans cover about 75% of the planet and are the most important carbon pump we have. But those systems have not been optimized. The FAO is saying that up to 94% of global fisheries are either overexploited or fully exploited. And we're looking at a number of different degradation factors in the oceans from microplastics, toxicity, overfishing that are affecting its ability to continue uh, serving as a pump. And so what we are looking at is how can we develop incentives for communities and governments to change how some of these resources, oceanic, uh, freshwater, as well as terrestrial are managed such that they can absorb and store more carbon that we've already emitted in the atmosphere around us. Thank you also for addressing the part of the ocean. We focus sometimes, we are a bit soil and land focused in these areas, but the oceans are really what are keeping us breathing and keeping the planet healthy. So, and we often forget about it. And it's really, I can see the vision and the work, and I really like the regenerative economy, how to enable it at a planetary level. I know we will discuss with you hours and hours, but as usual, we have... We need to go and close and wrap up our episode. And we do it with our usual call for action. People that are listening to you are people mainly in business, people that are interested in sustainability. What is awesome advice to them? Which are the tips that you can give to make the contribution towards solving our planetary crisis? Someone, I think it starts at individual as well as uh, organizational level. So our household, my family, for example, we have tried to look at our water footprint, our carbon footprint, our food waste, and wherever feasible, we try to make changes that don't necessarily impact our quality of life, but which are leading to improved conservation of energy, water, and things like that. I'd really encourage every household, every individual to look at ways that they can incrementally lighten their footprint. And it's really, really important for those of us who have developed country lifestyles like you and I, even if we live in emerging economies, you live in Kenya, I'm from Kenya, you know, so this isn't just about the individual. It's about those who have the heaviest footprint. We can make some of the steepest cuts without um, it really impacting too much uh, quality. But then linked to that is in our companies or our NGOs, the organizations where we work, is again to go through similar exercises and to commit over the next decade to incremental progress on an annual basis, preferably against science-based targets for how do we reduce the amount of water we use? How do we reduce the amount of food waste, the energy, the effectively the emissions as well, and to try and measure and to try and make sure that there is a goal. Doesn't have to mean having to do everything in one year. Over time, transitioning to being a cleaner organization. The other thing we can do as individuals, obviously, this problem of the planetary crisis, I'm not calling it the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis, I've chosen now to start calling it the planetary crisis, is without broad-based government commitment, policy changes, the impacts of individuals and companies are going to be limited. It requires a heavy public 
sector commitment to the transformation. And this is where individuals and companies can have a role in encouraging policymakers to speed up the pace of the trans transformation. In the US, people can speak directly to their legislators. In other countries as well, you can ask your MPs and elevate these issues to the point where it becomes really apparent that this is what the people want and need. We can get cleaner while making sure that GDP also continues to grow. And that's where the trade-off needs to be looked at, is how to find ways of transitioning to this regenerative economy, where effectively a hundred-year vision from today is that for our children's children's children, that this we are not polluting the planet, the seas are healthy, the land and soils are healthy, the air is clean, we can drink water out of streams in an ideal world, and there's equality and a just transition has been had for all. Now, these are all ideal, idealistic, but we've got to have something that we target, and that is going to require individual, corporate, and or organizational, and a radical change at the international and national government levels in terms of a commitment towards a more sustainable and regenerative economies. Thank you so much, Asan, for these wonderful tips and call for action. And also we are trying to give a bit of help and support with this podcast and trying to give voice to people like you, where our listener can learn, take example, and really work. And become a B Corp. Yes, uh, that's a very good one. For the, and then, of course, for the business leader that are listening, of course, that's B Corp, as Asan said. And then the work you've done, you can see it's really worth. It's something that it's worth considering. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and honor having you. Thank you so much for your time. Samuele, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real privilege as well. And uh, thank you so much again for granting me this opportunity to speak with you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.